This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our guest today is George M. Tabor, author of Chasing Gold. Uh, George, thank you so much for joining us today. Very happy to be here. So you've written four books about wine, I think. Yes. And after that, for the first time, you've written a book about how the Nazis sold Europe's gold. How did that come about? Well, it's a topic that's been a hobby of mine for more years than I would like to admit. Would you believe 50 years? I, <laughs> I have been interested in the topic. Um, and um, I thought that it was – the more I got into it, the more I realized nobody had actually written the kind of book about Nazi gold that I wanted to write, which was to try to put it in the context of how this fit in with the whole Nazi war strategy. And so I thought um, it was uh, – I thought somebody had to do it and why not me? So was it is it true that it was one of your former editors who put you onto the story first? Yes, it was uh, about fifty years ago. I was a young freelance writer, reporter. We call them stringers in those days, uh, for time. And I was in Brussels, and he was in Paris. And one day I got a call from him. This was in the mid-1960s, at which time gold was really a big topic of conversation politically because de Gaulle was trying to get the, the world to go back onto a gold standard. The United States was fighting it, and so there was a nice – all the fun of a Franco-American fight. Um, and what the boss told me, he said, uh, he, he said I, I picked up this story down here in Paris um, – I don't know whether it's true or not, that during World War II, the Belgians gave their gold to the French for safekeeping, but then the French turned around and gave their gold, gave that gold to the Nazis after they had invaded. And he said, boy, that would really make the French look bad. Once you, <laughs> he said, why don't you check into it and see if it's true? Well, I checked into it, and actually it is true. That is exactly what happened. Uh, the, the, I mean, you have to have a little bit of sympathy for the for the French because they were under heavy pressure from the Nazis who had occupied their country and, you know, who were running everything. And so, you know, they, they weren't totally free. It, at some level, this seems like such a huge story uh, covering the whole of Europe and over such a long period of time. How did you go about reporting in the book? Well, I spent an awful lot of time in National Archives. I spent uh, literally weeks. I had four trips to the German archives. Uh, I went to the Belgian archives, the French archives, the little, uh, British archives. Uh, and in all those places, I, I usually stayed a week uh, going through documents. And some of them were just fantastic. Uh, I mean, I, one of the things when I... I saw the various documents in the British archives. I just couldn't believe what they I mean this because what I found was hand, these handwritten letters uh, by the British cabinet in which they were taking the decisions to ship all their gold. This was in June of 1940. So the invasion, you know, they thought they were going to be invaded and they thought they, they had to get all of their gold across the Atlantic. And so they're setting up a plan that was going to basically – and it ended up they, – they, they shipped out 3,000 tons of gold, which was more than – I mean, it wasn't just British gold. They also were holding gold for a lot of uh, independent countries, uh, you know, who would, had sent their gold to, to Britain in hopes that it would be protected. And then now they'd lost 
you know, that, now they got fearful that the, that the French were, that the, the British were going to be run over by the Nazis as well, so they didn't lose it. So they wanted their gold moved with the, the British gold. One of the things I found so fascinating about your book is that it has these incredible characters. <laughs> There's one person whose, I may mispronounce his name, was Helmer Horace Greeley Schacht. Who exactly was he and what was his role? Oh, he was crucial. He was the, he was a, a national hero in Germany because he was the central banker <clears throat> who broke the inflation that had taken place in, in, in Germany in the 1920s. It is considered by, by the experts to either be the number one or the number two worst inflations in world history. The, the, the Reichs, Reichs uh, the, the Mark, as it was called, at, at that point totally collapsed. And, you know, the inflation was just crazy. And, and, and what people don't, I think, properly appreciate is the way when you, when you, the money that you have in society it has no value anymore. The society itself tends to crumble. There's nothing of value anymore. There's nothing that, and, and that's what exactly what happened in Germany. And literally at, at that time, the, the Germans had to take a wheelbarrow full of, of paper currency, not just one or two pieces, a wheelbarrow of paper currency to, to a, a, a shop to buy a loaf of bread. And, you know, and the, the German um, uh, government was printing uh, new, you know, new currency so fast that they didn't even put uh, uh, any, anything on the back side of the currency. They only printed on the front side of it because they, they had to, you know, get, get them running out that fast. Well, he shocked broke that. And so he was very, very important. When he threw in his lot with, with Hitler and, and became Hitler's uh, top finance guy, and he also came up with the, the strategy of how they were going to pay for the war. And it was, he called it a policy of autarky. We would call it self-reliance. Self you, you, you weren't going to be reliant on any foreign country. You wanted to have everything that you're going to need for the war made in Germany. But there were a few products that Germans just could not make. I wonder what drove the German hunger for gold. Is, was there any other way that they could have financed World War II? There's absolutely no other way. I mean, they, they would have, because their currency couldn't be used. I mean, obviously, the United States wasn't going to uh, be sending them, uh, you know, tanks or oil or any kind of product that, that they needed. Uh, the, the, the only way that the Germans could get these half-dozen wartime products that were so crucial for their war effort was to pay for them in gold or a currency like the, the Swiss franc, which the Germans then, you know, bought from Switzerland in exchange for gold. So gold throughout history has always been a medium of, of, of uh, finance that would always be acceptable because there's so little gold around the world and it has such a high value. I mean, I say so little gold. You know, the, all the gold that has ever been mined in the world would fill up three Olympic-sized swimming pools. Only three, because you can so you can imagine what, and and yet everybody wants that gold, <laughs> so the price goes up. So I believe the, it was the Austrian Central Bank that was the first to be raided. Yes, uh, that what, was the very first. What was the impact of that gold on the course of the war? Great. The Germans got a lot of gold out of Austria 
partly because nobody was expecting that kind of thing. Um, they got something like 90 tons of, of central bank gold, and they got 15 tons of private gold, largely from, from the Jewish citizens. Vienna had a large Jewish community that, that, that held a lot of gold and diamonds, and the, the, the Nazis got all of that. The Germans' war machine was almost out of, out of money when they invaded Austria. Suddenly, they had about 90 tons of new gold, and that allowed them to, to go on you know, invading other countries, Czechoslovakia, Poland, all of those. Some countries they got it, sometimes they didn't. In doing your research, uh, what were some of the most dramatic um, episodes that stuck in your mind? I think it was probably in the Norwegian story. Um, Norway was a neutral, uh, but Hitler was, you know, running over neutrals countries pretty fast. And so they were very worried that the, the Norwegian Norway would be run over. And it was in April of 1939. <clears throat> the Nazis invaded Denmark and Norway at this simultaneously. And the, the day of the invasion, uh, just shortly uh, after midnight, um, the Germans, the, 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 the Norwegians had pulled back a lot of their, their retired officers and retired people, and they, had, they weren't much of a military power, to say the least. They, they were a neutral country and thought that the best thing that they could do was just hope that nobody would invade. Um, but they had brought back some of the people in, from retirement, and one of the guys they brought back from retirement was given in charge of, of, uh, uh, of protecting the entrance to Oslo, which is the Oslo Fjord. And th there was a fortress there that had been built in the 19th century, and in that fortress were some guns. They were Krupp-made guns by the, the great German munitions manufacturer. Uh, there were two giant um, guns, and it, just past midnight, he looks out in the into the fjord, he looks out, out into the fjord, and he sees this giant ship coming towards him. Then he realizes it's a whole convoy of ships. There's several of them. He has no idea what the nationality is, because it could very easily have been a British ship, because the British were also very active, because they were trying to stop the Germans from, from doing that. But he looked out, and all he could see was this giant ship coming. He didn't realize it, but it was a brand new cruiser. It was on its maiden voyage. And it got, in, it got about a half a mile from him, and he looked out, and he said to nobody except himself, he said, tomorrow I'll be a national hero or I'll be court-martialed. Fire! <laughs> <laughs> and they fired, and dead on, they hit the, the, the ship. And that, the ship uh, went down and actually sunk about six hours later. A lot of the ship soldiers had been able to, to get off. Um, but the, that delayed the invasion by just a day, and in that one day of, of grace, the, the, the Norwegians were able to get the cabinet, the, the, the gold, and the king up to uh, the, the northern part of, of, Italy, of, 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 uh, of, of Norway, you know, bit, bit, bit by bit, uh, until they went over to Britain in, in the end. What surprised you most in writing this book? I, I was surprised by the reluctance of the United States to get more involved. I, I know why they did, and you know, after World War I, the Americans were 
uh, isolationists, and they didn't want to get involved in, in, in the world situation. Uh, you know, kind of feeling, you know, we, we were isolated. You know, we had, again, we had the ocean between us and Europe and let the, let the Europeans fight their own thing. Even though what the Nazis were doing was really outrageous. I mean, you know, they, and the fact that the United States, you know, it was only after Pearl Harbor that the United States got into World War II. And by that time, and the, the first uh, invasion of, of Austria was in 1938, uh, and the United States didn't get into the war until 42. So they had four years where the United States sat on their hands. Didn't do much. They did some, but not much. Uh, were it not for this major gold robbery, what do you think might have been Hitler's role in history? Well, I don't think it probably would have been much at all because I think they would have run out of money and he would have, his, his armies could not have accomplished what they did. Um, you know, at, at a certain point, you know, if Hitler had, 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 had quit, say, in 1936 or 37, uh, he would probably have gone into history as, you know, one of the great leaders because he, you know, he, he stopped the— he brought around the German economy, which was was struggling, and he, he unified the country. Uh, but he he didn't care about that. I mean, he was a fanatic who only cared about military power, and you know he 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 didn't know how to control himself, and and that's why he he went headstrong. And and after those first victories at the beginning, the victory over France, over Belgium, after Australia, uh, Austria, uh, Poland, all those countries, he, he, was, he had, it was, had been so heady that he thought he could do anything. And that's, he made the fatal mistake of invading the Soviet Union, and that was the beginning of his downfall. Now, since uh, you've written four books about wine before writing this one. Should we expect three more books about gold? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think there's going to be three more books about gold. I'm kicking around some of my other ideas, and I haven't actually decided uh, what my next book is going to be. I'm, I'm kind of looking for a topic. I, I'm afraid I, I don't think I'll probably ever find a, as good a topic as gold, so uh, I'll, I'll have to, uh, to deal with second best. <laughs> George, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you very much for having me. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.